Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to part two of our St. Patrick's Day special podcast with Martina Purdy and Elaine Kelly. In part one, we visited the area associated with St. Patrick's early ministry. In part two, we visit Steve Patrick, Struor Wells, Down Cathedral and finally his grave. However, do not switch off once you've heard our goodbyes as there is St. Patrick's breastplate. But what is St. Patrick's breastplate? What is Sleeve Patrick? What can we see at Struel Wells and Down Cathedral in Downpatrick, Northern Ireland? All these questions and more will be answered in the next hour. If you'd like to contact us, by the way, our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz and biz is spelt B-I-Z. And our Facebook page is Off Grid Christianity. I truly hope you will enjoy this special podcast as much as we enjoyed making it. Wow. And I say wow. <laughs> I've been forced to uh, run up. How, 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 how above the ground are we now then, uh, Elaine? Well, I'd say the, the statue itself is some uh, 32 feet itself. So I'd say you put that on top of a 10-acre hill, Stroke Mountain. So we must be about, I don't know, about oh, a couple of hundred. 20,000 feet at least. Yeah, a, couple, a couple of hundred feet. Up, yeah, I, well, more than that. And you uh, you made me run up here just as well I'm super fit. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> You really had to wait half an hour for you to catch your breath. <laughs> Just a joke. Yes. <laughs> Not far off it, though. Um, so, here we are then, at the top of... What's the name of this hill? This is Sleeve Patrick. As Martina had said earlier, uh, this plot of land, this little mountain, as Sleeve stands for mountain in Irish, was given by the people of this area, uh, the Hampton family, Denny Hampton, was given to the local parish priest. You can see across there, obviously, the church, Saul Church, which yeah. was built in 1933. Now, that was the memorial, as it were, Patrick's 15 centuries of being here, 1,500 yeah. years. So the local population here, the Catholic population, their response was to do this. So this actual piece of land that was given, called Slee William, was consecrated in uh, 17th of March, 1932, by the then bishop, who cut the sod. And there's a man down the hill who actually still has the spade. They've oh, cut wow. the first sod. Now, they cut the sod and blessed the mountain and had mass. Now, the thing about it is... They then raised money to go away and build this absolutely brilliant statue. Now, this statue was built by the men, quarry men between Kilcoo and Newcastle called Bally McGregan, and it took them six years. Now, if you look at this, it's all done in block. But as you look towards the statue of Patrick, you can see the way it's carved. Yes. Now, back in those days, between 1932 to 1938, their men would not have had the very top uh, mechanical machinery. A lot of that was done by hand. And you can see the love with which that was done. You can see the folds of the chastable and of the uh, various parts of Patrick's gown. And you can see how that was done. Yeah. Now, this was actually put up here on the third Sunday in June, 1938, some six years later. And, and it's here that they had the high mass. And some 50,000 people came here, at least, from all over Ireland. Martina? Yeah, just to say a little bit about the statue, it sort of it looks a bit like it's sliced like a wedding cake if you look really closely. That's yeah, how no, it was yeah. all put together. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, it says at the base, Neve Podrick, which is Irish for St. Patrick, Neve being the, the name in Irish for saint, 432 to 1932. Below it is Latin, and above it is Patrick himself, who faces actually towards Downpatrick, the town that the Anglo-Norman knight, John de Courcy, renamed Dunpodrig, Patrick's stronghold, and he championed Patrick. Now, if you look up to the statue, you'll see that the feet look a little odd. So on the right hand, Patrick's right, he's wearing a boot. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and on the left hand, that's not a mistake, he's wearing the, the sandal of the apostle. The boot is in homage to the quarrymen, 
and obviously the sandal for the Christian. And if you go up, you'll see he, his hand is in the three, to pointing to the Trinity. He has the staff of the bishop and the mitre on his head, which probably he may not, never have worn, but it's a modern uh, attribute. Now his face is particularly striking. But what's striking for those who know is that Charles Darcy, then the Church of Ireland, Archbishop of Armagh, was the model for the face. I always joke that he was probably better looking than the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Armagh, but he's dressed in the robes of the Roman Catholic Archbishop. So it's a bit of a nod to ecumenism. Yeah, and as Martinez pointed that out, I mean, you think about it, one faces the other. It's all church, the cradle of Christianity, um, and which obviously is in the hands of the custodians, the Anglican Communion. And here we have the absolutely amazing statue of Patrick, which was, in 1964, National Geographic did a whole study on it and a whole expose on it, just so magnificent it is. And one faces the other, and the ecumenism is there to see. You can see in the statue of Patrick how much there was a collaboration of the Christian faiths, how that has stood the test of time. You can see also as well what we talked about being the Celtic cross. Yes. And you can see that that is at the Absolutely. centre just beneath Patrick's feet. Round each of the sides, there are four bronze inscriptions, plaques that have been put up. Now this particular one here more or less indicates that there's a story behind it. It's written in Latin. Um, I'll let you translate it. Okay. I, don't, I don't want to show off. I'll tell you the story. Maybe that'll be the translation. <laughs> it's in the time of, it goes back to 441. If you remember, Patrick came here in yeah. 432. And at that time, Leo was the, the Pope at the time. But basically, there is a story which is true. And if you go to uh, St. Patrick's Centre on the exhibition, they have it well documented. When Patrick came here, he was, uh, it was a lot of hard work, but he was having great success. At that time, the senior ecclesiastical court was in Britain. And there was a lot of jealousy about because Patrick was doing so well. And also because he was the apostle, the bishop here, he got on with his work. And he had what was called, no, the shekel, the people's shekel, Mm -hmm. the money. Patrick, whatever he got, he used and put into the church here to build it up. But there was some jealousy about Patrick and those in the British ecclesiastical court wanted him to basically send over money to them. But he was using it and obviously working hard here to build up the Irish church. Cut a long story short, a friend of his who he knew from the time before he was trafficked told a story about him and basically you know got him into difficulty with the British Ecclesiastical Court now this is when he was a youngster but the friend in reparation for it when he could see his wrongdoing actually travelled to Rome and came back with a letter from Leo Pope Leo and presented it to the court and a copy to Patrick Patrick was to be left alone to be able to build up the church here in Ireland and he was to use whatever funds he had that was necessary, he was to use them to build up the Irish church. But that shows you, you know, the, the jealousy against Patrick at that time, yeah. even going back into his day, just a few years into his mission. As if there would be jealousy in modern day Christianity for someone that starts up a church and everything else. As if. Well, the sad thing is that um, human nature doesn't change, but, no. uh, but Christ brings the transformation. And it was jealousy, I always argue, that it killed Christ as well, because, mm. you know, the resentment and jealousy of, of that he had the people with him. And he was challenging the authorities. By the time Patrick had left this particular area, there were, I think, at least uh, 50 churches. And this whole area towards the Irish Sea to the left, because the view here is just amazing, that's known as Bishop's Court. And they just built churches almost you know uh, on every wooden well, street corner but uh, you know across fields and so uh, this is a very rich in Christianity and Christian heritage and to the right is the amazing view of Strangford Lock where Patrick would have sailed in. And we're going to talk about that view any second now. Yeah.
I said we we're going to talk about the view, but I just want to show off here to show that I have been listening. And for those that come on the future pilgrim walks with yourself, they'll go, oh, yes, Martin was right. Because in the previous church we were in, the stained glass window of St. Patrick, he was holding his crook in his right hand, whereas up here he's holding it in his left hand. That means he's very ecumenical, just saying. Yeah, it also means that, according to that, he also has it turned into himself. And that also means that this is his domain in the sense of this is his ah. ecclesiastical area. He is the archbishop of this area and bishop. So that turned into himself points that out. There's a lot of secrets to this statue. That's that, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I try to be sort of half clever and we find that out. It's amazing. If you don't ask, you don't get so this view there, what a view. Who's going to describe it? Who's going to go first? Well, I do part of it, Martina, and then you can kick in. Okay, so then, I'll do this bit, and then you see the bit around here. So if I take it from here, and we'll end up back around here at Donard, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so <laughs> if we look here, just beneath us here, when you look over, you find the River Slaney, just the estuary of it there, mm-hmm. and that's where Patrick would have arrived, just across oh, yeah. here. So if you think about it, he made his way over the fields, a very short distance, but that's where he would have encountered the wines, uh, swineherd, yeah. who would have brought DQ to him, and then he brought him over there and gave him the barn. And it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're coming up the lock... Yeah, that's where he would have ended up. Yeah. So, yeah. He would go as far as you can go, so he would have gone there. The lock is right in front of us, and if you look straight ahead, you can see Scrabble Tower, which is Newton Arts. Yes, it is. Straight ahead. Yeah, you come across here. Yeah. You can see Cave Hill. You can see Divis. And beyond that, there would be Slemish, which is the actual mountain that Patrick would have tended the sheep on. And what you have across from us now, just straight ahead of us, is uh, a very tranquil um, Strangford Lock, yeah. which Patrick would have come up. And over- several islands on, just saying. Yeah, there's something like, someone said there's something like 365 islands on the uh, lock, which is one for every day of the year. And beyond that, way over there, now in the distance, in the far distance, you have Scotland. Yeah. You can see it over there. Yeah. And over here, coming over to the right, if you move further around, you have the Isle of Man, which is just there. Belfast is clearly evident over there by Cave Hill in the distance, which is also called Napoleon's Nose, isn't it? If I'm right yeah, now? my mother used to call it that. Yeah, it's just by the shape of the rock. Yeah. And no, we are very blessed to be up here on such a clear day. Um, it's also my favourite time of the year to come here because you have all the gorse that surrounds the monument, so you get the real contrast with the green. And you just see so so many sleepy little drumlins. It's very yeah. a characteristic of down, the formation of the land. And you see this particular point you get north south east and west in every direction patrick himself faces down patrick yep. as i said before and he faces sleeve donard the highest peak in northern ireland and also named after uh, his disciple donard who was the son of a chieftain that patrick converted and as we go around the front also though we're on top of this hill but if we go back 1600 years patrick at the base there for the church he just founded mm-hmm. he'd be seeing this hill every day and we're on top of it I think so, because it would have been the highest point in yeah. this particular area, other than um, Cathedral Hill, where uh, Down Cathedral is, and that was the highest point in the town. But, you know, this was a, an area that was tidal. So Down Patrick was always flooding, because the, the tide would come in. So people would have travelled by boat, generally. And there was a number of barrages built, the last one, I think, in the 1950s, to stop the tide coming up to where, actually, the, the St. Patrick Centre is built today, just on in the in the foot of the cathedral 
And that's, that's the Isle of Man I can see over there, yeah. is it? Wow. So people are really amazed, and it doesn't. It's not a very difficult climb. As you climb, you'll see. Well, I don't know. I think actually anywhere else, especially <laughs> United States of America, they would have had a cable car put in here. <laughs> well, you haven't be the first to suggest it. <laughs> yeah, the Americans always talk about the gift shop when they come. <laughs> but you know, as you climb, you'll see that there's 14 crosses on the yes. way up. So that's the Stations of the Cross, and so it's a way of remembering the Christ Passion. Uh, people come here particularly on Good Friday. The crosses were donated by different families from different Christian denominations. Can I just say, it's actually quite poignant for me because when I went to start my broadcasting career properly, there was always talk of us being able to broadcast from the Isle of Man. And, you know, so so I can see it clearly here now. Wow, amazing. Yeah. I have read some accounts that the Isle of Man's patron saint actually was a disciple of Patrick and might have been a bit of land that, you know, wasn't too difficult to cross. Yeah. There is always these legends around Patrick that he was going to make his way to the Isle of Man to convert the people, but he was passed by a red-headed woman who didn't bless herself, so he decided not to. But there's one of the kind of stories that spring up about Patrick. Well, talking of which, I know we talked about St. Paul earlier on, and I always was told that St. Paul was in fact married because if he said he claimed to be a Pharisee, I think this was the argument, uh, if he was claimed to be a Pharisee, then you had to be married. I could be wrong on that. But what do we know about St. Patrick marrying or anything else like that? In those days, priests could marry, but there's no record of him marrying. His father was a deacon in the church, and his grandfather he describes as a priest. But as for Paul, he took a vow, um, a Nazarene vow, shaved his head. So I don't know if that he had some exemption. Could have because, been afters, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many mysteries about the history, and some of it comes down through tradition. Yes. Uh, obviously, the, the written word didn't come until at least um, 70, 80 years after Christ. So. Just looking uh, towards down Patrick, and you, you'll see from the Strangford Lock, you see there's yeah. this river coming along, and that's the Coyle River. And the Coyle River runs through down Patrick. And on the other side of the Coyle is a place called Inch Abbey. And Inch Abbey was built by John de Courcy, the Anglo-Norman knight, who also built Carrickfergus Castle, and he built it well. And he built Inch Abbey reasonably well. It's one of the best-preserved ruins of Gothic architecture on the island. And when John de Courcy built the abbey around 1170 it was in reparation for uh, destroying a monastery this whole area steeped in monasticism and in reparation he built inch abbey and john de Courcy made himself the prince of ulster and he was an incredibly ambitious knight but the story of patrick was championed by him and he appointed a monk called jocelyn at Inch Abbey on the other side of that river to write the story of Patrick and it was Jocelyn who recorded that Patrick banished the snakes from Ireland and as Elaine said the snake represented the pagan practices and there's something I could just point out to you right in front of us you can see obviously these lights that are all the whole way around just one at each corner now whenever it comes to St. Patrick's Day about the week before these are all lit up green so you can imagine this whole Ah. statue is really lit up and it's absolutely magnificent it can be seen for miles and miles and miles And Martina mentioned as well, he's facing down Patrick and he's also facing his mission fields because if you think about it, he came in from this direction from the sea and this is the area that he's facing. This is practically the whole of the north and the south, the whole of Ireland and particularly the north where he spent most of his time. These are the mission fields that Patrick is about to encounter. We mentioned these bronze slabs that are in the statue itself, the base of it. Mm -hmm. There's four of them. So we did one of them there, which is to do with the Latin concerning Leo. Pope Leo and this one here is obviously what we've talked about when Patrick first arrived it's all written in Irish that was the language at the time and you can see Patrick there he's got the cross and he's just arrived a few miles from here just down there the River Slaney 
He's got his cohort there of monks and priests. And a wolfhound. And, and a wolfhound. Well, that's him on the right. That's GQ, as you can see on the left. Ah. That's the story. And roughly in Irish, it says there that Patrick, you know, encounters DQ. St. Patrick, you know, you can see the name DQ there, D-I-C-H-U. So that's him and his cohort. And you can see on the left-hand side, if you look closely, you can see the barn yes. behind him. Yes. And that is the very barn. Uh, we've been to the latest version of it there, just uh, where Patrick had the first church. And you can see on the right-hand side behind Patrick, yes. you can see the boat that he came up on, which is in the River Slaney. You can see that top right-hand right. corner, which tells the story. We're jumping a wee bit, but this is the middle one here, shows Patrick's death. Okay. And this is a scene that we've seen uh, in the stained glass window uh, down in uh, St. Patrick's Church. And you can see our friend Santasic. You can see him there, just over Patrick. And he's got the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, and he's given him the last rites. And that's Patrick there, and that's obviously the, the people praying and obviously preparing for Patrick's death. But as we know, his death brought him eternal life. Just to say one thing uh, is that one thing I always was impressed with, Patrick himself, like all the great saints, I mean, they're human just like us. And he knew, like, he had to die as well. I mean, that journey had to come for him as well, which I find is always always very comforting for each one of us that... Christ himself took that journey and his disciples take it with him into new life. Martina? Well, I was going to say that Patrick had a dream that he is a man of visions, and so he had a dream that he was to return to John Patrick. He didn't really want to come back here to die, but he was to die here and be buried here. And so that's why he's not buried in Armagh. His grave is not too far from here, and we'll go there shortly. There's also another wee bronze plaque here. They are quite substantial. The size of a, a small kitchen table, I'd say. Uh, yeah, that's right. And if you look, you can see uh, St. Patrick, he lights the fire. The fire we refer to as the Paschal fire. You remember that in uh, the, the church when Patrick went and lit the fire on Slane Hill across from Tara? We're Larry the King. We mentioned that. We did. We did. I, I was very facetious in saying it was a rocket ship, wasn't well, it? Well, that's right. Well, there you go, right in front of you. That's actually the fire itself, a depiction of it. And you can see Patrick there lighting the fire with his priests and his monks. And that was the very first Easter fire on the first Easter vigil that he was here. That's a great depiction of that. So the statue as so well. which one's Patrick again? Patrick is on the left. Well, the one with the, the crown. Well, well it's, it's like a mitre. Bishop's, bishop's hat, he mitre. Would, yeah. it's, it's obviously quite modern. That's roughly the way that the mitres would have been back yeah. in the day whenever that was being built. Um, uh, but, you know, it depicts him as the bishop and you can see he's wearing the robes of the bishop as well. It would have been something much simpler back in the time of Patrick, but he was a bishop. So he would have had something to denote that. But that's the Paschal fire, you know, lit, lit on the Easter, first Easter vigil that he was here. And uh, that represents, you know, the coming of Christianity to Ireland. So really what this whole statue, you can see the base is about. Yeah. It's really alluding to the story of Patrick bringing Christianity to Ireland. The, the viewer, as they look around, would be able to, you know, enjoy that story. And also to see, you know, the statue as well for me, as well as it's a beautiful statue. It also shows you the power of the Holy Spirit in the man of Patrick, the apostle. And uh, the fact that this has been the biggest statue of to Patrick in Ireland and the world, the fact it's still still the position, is kind of like uh, underlines that great and magnificent story for all of us to enjoy. Just changing the subject slightly before we, we run down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking to some people in the church and they both, the husband and wife, said, oh, we know who you two are. So I'm going to ask this question to you. Martina, first of all, and then yourself as a barrister lane afterwards. Looking back, any thoughts, any fond thoughts of 
being a BBC NI political commentator, especially as we're transitioning now into the Windsor Agreement. And wouldn't it have been great if you were there? What, what do you think, Martina? Oh, I have no regrets about not being there. I spent a good part of my life, and it was a blessed time, to, uh, waiting for politicians to make up their minds and talking about the peace process until I realized that peace is a person, peace is Christ. And one of the reasons I think we have all these problems is that it's not rooted in Christ, it's rooted in political interests. And people need to look beyond the past, yes, own it and have healing, but they also need to look beyond their own interests. And, you know, every peacemaker will tell you that, Nelson Mandela included, that you have to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and see things from their perspective. And hopefully this time there will be a resolution because what's the alternative? It's just chronic arguments. So no, although the Lord in his wisdom has brought Elaine into my life as a good friend and a barrister who I would say is what I used to call Sinn Féin, institutionalized negotiators. So there's a lot of negotiations still in my life. What did you call her? I used to, an institutionalized negotiator. Even when she's one, she's still negotiating. I'm like, I agree with you. So uh, I'm never sure. I'm never away from the negotiations, really. But no, I'm very, very happy at the turn of events in my life. It's a big surprise. You kind of kind of go with the flow. It's certainly taken a turn that I never anticipated. And, you know, I'm here and, and Elaine and I got these green sweatshirts made um, mm-hmm. by a lovely uh, company in Belfast who make a lot of kind of Christian outerwear. And this one is it's green sweatshirts in Kelly Green and says St. Patrick's Way Pilgrim Guide. So, but the reason I tell that story is that for years I avoided wearing green because when I was a child, my mother, being immigrants to Canada, dressed me from head to toe in green, including yeah. a green bow and green socks, and sent me off to school. So I fell out with St. Patrick for a while. Had it been me, I would have put you up in blue because that's the colour of Ireland, just saying. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so I've got to know St. Patrick in a, in a kind of new, profound way. And he always points to Christ because all saints point to Christ. And so uh, he's an amazing person for our time, an amazing kind of role model, especially for young people who have no faith. Because Patrick, you know, the Lord can do anything. And he takes this young person with no faith and makes him the apostle of faith in Ireland. It's incredible. And you, Elaine, I've, I've got to say, by the way, that you mentioned the sweatshirts that you're wearing at the moment. You've missed a trick here because I would have bought a couple. You should have St. Patrick's Way on the front and on the back, St. Patrick's Way on tour and name all the churches and places you go. Because, you know, I would have bought one as a memento. So looking back on your past life as a barrister then, any thoughts on what you've learned from that and what you're doing now? Yeah, well, I think Martina mentioned about negotiation and compromise. I mean, I remember when we were religious sisters, um, one of our spiritual directors told us when you live in community or any sort of you know encounter with a human being you're, you tend to have negotiation what was the other word I used? Conflict. <laughs> Conflict. <laughs> negotiation and compromise it never leaves you it never leaves you and anybody out here anyone out there listening knows and that's something I used compromise. to do. Compromise? That's something I used to do a lot of when I was at the bar you know my life was about negotiation and compromise yeah. and it was always yeah. about trying to you know, bring about the best outcome. And I had a great lady who was who shared a room with me. She's a KC herself, Monia, and you dig it in. So she won't mind me hope using her name, but she used to say to me, Elaine, there was no blood on the floor. As long as there's no blood on the floor during negotiations and as long as you're able to come away without that, I was always happy. So in relation to being a barrister and doing what I'm doing now, well, I guess I've been described by some people as a good communicator, educator, and an encourager. I suppose I've always had those gifts and I had them as a barrister. They're more perhaps pronounced now. I've grown more in my spiritual journey 
and where I am now, really, I would not have sought to be a St. Patrick's Way guide, but it was given to me as a gift. And I've grown into it and I grow into it every day. And what it's about for me, it's about showing people this beautiful countryside, the beauty of this area, and the amazing story, as we said before, of a young 16-year-old boy who was humanly trafficked, which happens now on a much greater scale, perhaps, yes. with along with thousands of other people from his homeland, and brought to this country for six years, uh, where he tended sheep. And out of that human tragedy, brokenness and darkness, out of that came actually you know, a revolution for the country that I live in, for Western civilization. And this all dates back to the yes of a young man called Patrick, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, to the gift of Christ. And this is what we have the opportunity to tell people. And the wonderful thing about it is that it's not sort of just for some people or you know one sect of people. It's, for, it's a story for everybody. There's so many elements of Patrick's story, this beautiful countryside and the walking and the community, you know, the community of people, of sharing, listening to someone's story quietly, privately, listening to each other, having a bit of crack. And, you know, it's a universal story and it's, it's for everybody. The fact that we've discovered this beautiful part of County Down, as you're discovering now yourself with your wife, Alison, I mean, it, it gets better and better. And the fact that, one thing I would say, is the fact that it's having such great success shows me that it has to be a good thing. Well, yeah, it's kind of a seamless transition in some ways because pilgrim guides are storytellers and so I've spent my life telling stories <laughs> and pointing to the truth as best I could. Yeah, thank I you for throwing the truth in, yeah. Yeah, people are kind of cynical about journalists, but I uh, people make mistakes, but never would I want to deliberately mislead anyone. But I suppose there's a famous uh, theologian called von Balthasar and he talks about beauty, goodness and truth. And sometimes we call this the way of beauty because beauty does lead you to goodness and goodness leads you to truth. And so we're all on a pilgrim. We're all on a pilgrim way. Um, and this is a, an opportunity within your life to stop and think and look around and just enjoy the beauty and uh, go home refreshed and hopefully a little bit lighter. We're heading for the grave shortly. Uh, Lane's laughing. I'm laughing because you mentioned a wee bit lighter. Whenever Martin was walking up the hill, I was thinking, gosh, the pines are flying off him. So, yeah, it does. You're a wee bit lighter in every way. <laughs> I'd be looking for those pound notes on the way down. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, so we're on our way to the grave. And that's usually where like, there's seven sites that we bring people. But the grave is the last site. And uh, we have a little passport and everybody gets each site. They get a little stamp like the, the Camino de Santiago. And I tell people at the start of the pilgrimage, we usually say some words. We pray the words of St. Patrick himself, you know, usually a pilgrim volunteers to, to recite these words, use words like, you know, stability of earth, firmness of rock. These are elements that the people understood and, and the splendor of fire. But I tell people, when you get to the grave, I want you to lay your burden, whatever you've been carrying in, in your journey through life up to now, leave it with Patrick to be presented to the Most High God and go home more refreshed and a little bit lighter. And tell the story of the man. Oh, yeah, we, we did have a couple, and the man said to me, I keep trying to leave my burden at the grave, but my wife keeps following me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, do you know what? That is, uh, sorry, I mustn't laugh. That's no, how, no, how could I? Talking of which, well, we, we left well, in the car. The wife laughed as well. <laughs> yeah, she would do. We better go see her because uh, for those who want to come on the Pilgrim's Way, we'll give you more details again. Uh, and how to find Elaine and Martina on the websites and, of course, through the Northern Ireland Tourist Board, etc. But it's not for the faint-hearted. It's well worth a walk up. I mean, the view is just stupendous. There's no two ways about it. But bring on that cable car because I wouldn't have been able to push my wife up in a wheelchair on this. Yes.
I've before a cable car on a hot summer's day, no problem. Well, listen, the fresh air is terrific, oh, so it, everything you need is here. It's stunning. So come and be amazed. Right, so we've come down from the cable car that was put in specially for us. <laughs> and you brought us to Struel Wells. Is that how you say it, Martina? It's Struel Wells. It means uh, it's an Irish for stream. And this is, I believe, the oldest pilgrimage site on the island. And for centuries, pilgrims have come here, made their way here for the eve of St. John the Baptist. And they came here to atone. And on this site, to my left, you can hear the birds singing, to my left is St. Patrick's Well. And I was speaking earlier about documentary evidence, uh, a song yes. from, I think, the 8th century of him singing uh, psalms in this well all night to Christianize it. Because as you see, this is quite an amazing site. And it's uh, walled almost like a very long field long narrow field there's another well in the middle stone well a covered well that's the eye well patrick's well is the mother well and in the distance you'll see a stone house and there's another one behind it and they were bath houses we're talking about what i'm just trying to think about from playing golf it's about 60 yards in length and about what about 40 50 yards in width going down into a narrower point at the end but we're in like a little valley really aren't we with a almost like a a quarry effect on the far left hand side Local told me that's known as the orange shield. I don't know why. It might be because of the gorse that kind of is now growing on it. This was very popular in medieval times, post-Reformation. There was a an indulgence from the Vatican if you made a pilgrimage here. But it's like all things that set out to be good and proper, they fall into kind of pagan practices. So... <laughs> People started to have a whiskey tent here, and there was all kinds of superstition and shenanigans going on. And Lady Southwell was one of the landed gentry, and there's a lot of kind of people looking down saying this is not very Christian. And eventually, the church withdrew the the indulgence for the pilgrimage. But it is an authentic pilgrim site. It is authentically patrician. It's pre-Christian speculation that perhaps that was here that the rituals because there's a little stream just runs under the ruin of that church over there which Shalane will tell you about and pre-christian times was probably used for rituals because you know the celts they worshipped water was among the elements and i talked to a local man who said that you know this was known for a place of healing miracles and he remembers somebody leaving their crutches up against that wall over there in the 1950s so it is a holy site. Uh, it's in the hands of the state, but the local parish priest would say mass here at Easter, on Easter morning, at dawn. Basically, as Martina has said, um, when Patrick arrived, I mean, the water here, the stream, and you know they worshipped the elements, but also the chieftains used it for their pagan practices, and he knew that. You know, he had been on Slemish, lived in a, in the north for six years, so he knew their practices. So when he came here, as Martina said, his endeavor, Patrick's endeavor, was. To was to baptise and Christianise the water so that these things would not happen again. And I've no doubt maybe this was a place as well, given the water, that pa- Patrick may have baptised also some of the, the new converts. So Martina's given you the main history of the whole area, but, you know, back in the day, whenever people came here on pilgrimage, you know, there would have been hundreds and hundreds of people coming here. You know, they would have come in from the likes of Galway, Scotland as well, and they would have come all over Ireland. And a lot of them would have been in bare feet. You know, there was no travel around or anything. And a lot of people, when they came here, you know, genuinely, you know, it was a place of healing for them and the, and the holy waters because, you know, they were baptised by and blessed by a saint, you know, uh, in the days before things went to skew. And beyond the bathhouse furthest there, which is the men and the women's bathhouse, very much at the bottom, maybe 100 yards down, you see another sort of ruin beyond that in a field 
We're told beyond there, over there somewhere, that also those who didn't make it, you know, would have been buried. Some people came here, obviously, and just weren't sick well enough, you know, to, to head back. For those, obviously, who the Lord was calling to him, they were, they were buried over there. Just to say where we are, Martinez pointed out to you, that used to be a church. Behind us on the left-hand side, just maybe 50 yards away, you'll see the ruin of a church. Now, there had been a church there because tax records around the 13th century refer to there being a church. And the church, actually, the altar went over the stream. Now, they were rebuilding the church. This was a new church that they were rebuilding, but this kind of hit hit around the Reformation time, and the landlords were not happy that this was being built. You know, the, the local men prominent men so the building stopped on the church so that's the ruin of it there but it's a pretty good solid wall and everything so Martino yeah. referred to the, the original spots obviously none of this infrastructure would have been here but that's marks the spot where Patrick would have been as well as you know it's about the size of a, a modern day bathroom in a, yeah. a typical, typical house yeah that, that area there would have been where he would have baptised the water blessed it now underneath there's a stream there just where the wall is and there's obviously a, you know a you know, water table underneath here yeah. and it runs along here. That that eye well is actually a natural spring. It's not, you know, connected to the stream, so it bubbles up in any event. And people would go there for, like, eye cures and things like that there. Beyond that, you'll see the bathhouse. On the right-hand side is the men's, and the women's is on the left. It's it's uh, obviously partitioned by a wall. And how old is that? That's about 1,600-odds. Wow, well, I mean, to, The bathhouse yeah, itself, yeah. Um, it's been there for some time, but the bathhouse itself is 16, about 1,600-odds. So really the water goes underneath and the water table and they build little culverts, which means that the water just flows through. Whether, you know, obviously if it's high, the water's very high, but if it's not, you still get a steady stream of water coming from underneath, you know, the, the water board, the water table. Yeah. On the right-hand side would have been the men's and on the left-hand side, the women's. Because this would have been like a bathing site, you know, like Lourdes or, um, do you know, that like you've got baths in, yeah, in England, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the holy the, the waters. Now, obviously the Romans used it a lot. And that was kind of, you know, it was healing waters, healing properties. And uh, Stupid question. How yeah. do we know that the men were on the right and the ladies went on the we left? We know that. Go ahead, Martina. We know that because traditionally the one on the left was the only bathing house. And it was where everyone bathed together. And the Lady Southwell, who was connected to the Cromwells, she thought it was inappropriate for the men and the women to be bathing together. So they built the men's bathhouse, and you can see it is unusual. It has a stone roof. It probably goes back, I think, 1700s? and 1600s. 1600s, thank you, Elaine. But what uh, happened was the men started to, uh, the rich men started to pay to use the, the, the snazzy one there on the right, which is the men's. So the poor men couldn't afford the, the bathhouse, so they ended up, the poor men ended up bathing with the women, which they might have preferred anyway. And the rich men went into the one as you can see it's very well preserved and Elaine would lead pilgrims in there in the summer she has the key to the gate and it's very deep bath in there and if you go towards the ladies uh, bathhouse on the left it doesn't have a roof anymore but you can see the pipe where the water would have come through the barrel it was known as the limb well and that people would have washed their hands and their feet and their limbs but you know, Lane was talking there about people coming here on pilgrimage seeking yeah. healing. But, you know, the NHS wasn't around, you know, a thousand years ago. People didn't have emergency rooms to go to. They relied on a miraculous healing and they had great faith in the healing powers of this holy site. So, through, you know, obviously it's rooted in Christ, but they came here, they prayed for healing. And that is the, known as the eye well in the middle. So it is said to have properties for healing eyes. I know one of our pilgrims leaned in in the summer and 
he lost his Ray-Bans in there. I think Elaine and I went back to see if they were there, but they were clearly either taken or sucked back into the stream. <laughs> they the, one other aspect of it is, it's very hard to make out, but if you look up there, you'll see on the right-hand side, just below the gorse, there's kind of like a stump of stone. Now, that's known as Patrick's chair. Now, the story is, tradition holds it that when Patrick was here as well, he was also aware that the chieftains also used the likes of, you know, maybe a stone chair up there as part of their practices. And tradition holds that Patrick also went up and sat on the chair and obviously Christianized it, blessed it. Now, over the years, it has been kind of chipped away at and it's um, been, you know, parts of it have come off and it's also been damaged. I think the last damage to the chair was maybe a couple of hundred years ago. So it really kind of is in ruins but it is documented in the material that's here in Stroh Wells that that is known as Patrick's chair. And the priest would have heard confession. You're supposed to go up in a penitential way on your knees. I didn't know that, and I tried to climb up. <laughs> so I fell. I was thrown onto my knees. Anyway, it was pretty painful, but uh, people don't tend to go up there. No, it's not encouraged. The briars are very big, and, you know, it's been kind of broken down. So, But it is documented there, and you can see something from here. Yeah, and then you, Lane talked about the field and the distance where people would have been buried. But there's also a, a house there. It's uh, an old ruin. And I met a man here one day, and he said he lived in the house as a child. So he had a very fond memories of the 50s wow. and 60s. He said this would have been a very popular picnic area for families. I think he said there was an out, outdoor plumbing. So they would have used this as their drinking water. Now, I wouldn't recommend it today. I think it's probably, I think they did some testing to see if it could be bottled, but it's been contaminated, so... Possibly by, you know... Uh, Fertiliser. Fertiliser. says <laughs> in a Bristolian accent. Why I go back into Bristolian accent? <laughs> now, there's some graffiti here that goes back centuries up uh, on the chair. Apparently, I think it's around 1800. There's graffiti. And also, there's a little etching into the um, side of the well, which is about a 13th century cross, which had previously been, I think, in the church, on the church. So we can show you. You can see uh, these little windows come from, the, like chancel windows. Yeah. They come from the original church that was here. I mentioned that was there before that one was built. So it's obviously it was definitely around there, around the 12, 1300s. And those, as you look straight ahead, Martin, like the little chancel windows, nice yeah. little kind of choice little windows that are just being built into the, um, you know, into the wall there beside um, St. Patrick's Well. Fantastic. Come around and look at the yeah, well. Please. So just yeah. go through this little gate. What's so amazing here, of course, is that it hasn't been touristied, if that's the right oh. right word to use. Because we are miles from the nowhere. You've already made mention of the birds in the trees chirping away. And here we have it. Yeah. I think it's this is 13th century, and you can see it's a very simple. Someone has drawn like a, a line and yeah. a cross, and then in each end of the cross there's a little triangle. It's an ancient Christian cross, and you'd see that shape. I think you see it on Patrick's grave. About the size of a paperback book, isn't it, really, mm. with a cross? What does the triangle signify, do you think? Trinity, I think. Yeah. I think that's right. Paddy was here as well. Yeah, Someone Paddy had... was there. I don't think else. that's 13th century. Oh, no. I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't read the rest of that. Either. I thought you said Pat. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I think that's new. because uh, It is new. It hasn't been there before. Someone's just added their own little motif to it. You know, Less. As happens. So we're coming around now to St. Patrick's well. Wow. Now, you can look in. Now, the water's not very high. Yeah, I mean, you imagine it's like a modern-day jacuzzi in your hotel that you're going to. It's actually, that water's been higher than it's been in a while. Normally, what we find is that it's gone down a bit. Normally, it's much higher. But as Martina said, that's the well that Patrick would have bathed in all night singing psalms 
and blessed it. Wow. It's a, it's a beautiful site. Usually by the time people come here, uh, if they are doing the long pilgrimage from Slee Patrick to here, they've walked a lot of laneways, an ancient pilgrim route with views of Slee Donard, but they're pretty wrecked. And they're usually, as I say to Elaine, sprawled out on the grass, gasping for um, refreshment. So I usually come out uh, in the afternoon with ice cream and refreshments. There's no gift shop. We had one lady, Celine, who was an amazing woman, and she's one of our early pilgrims. She had done the Camino de Santiago, wow, yeah. and uh, she could have. She was skipping around the place. She wanted her tour immediately. She didn't want to rest, yeah. and she could have done, I think, the whole circuit again, maybe three times. Yeah, she uh, was energized by being here. Like she just, you know, Martina took that route. I normally take the afternoon route, which is the fourteen miles. Uh, Martina took the morning one, but she brought the pilgrims out, and uh, there were pictures of Celine with her, you know, her walking sticks. She did. A video. Wow. She did a video and she just like I mean the energy wow. flying out of her was wow. incredible but that just shows you the buzz that she got from uh, coming on St. Patrick's Way. That was my first time doing that route. I was filling in and I wasn't 100% sure of I had an idea, you know, I had gone through the route, but I said, I think it's right. And like one exhausted pilgrim said, you better be right. <laughs> like, they're going to kill me, but it was right. But uh, I called Elaine just to be double sure because it's, it's an amazing route, but it's quite muddy. We actually changed the route because it got very muddy in certain parts of the year. You can't do yeah. it. It's a must for people to come here because it's so tranquil, so quiet and peaceful here. It's brilliant. And I'm so glad you brought us here. Where are we off to next? Yeah, I think we'll go to Down Cathedral and then we'll finish at the grave, if that's okay, that's Martin. F- absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, guys. Well, this is brilliant. We're now in Down Cathedral and Martina and Elaine have brought us here. And with me is uh, Finbar McElmick, who's an archaeologist and also a, a tour guide here. Tell us more about this amazing cathedral, please. Well, the, the cathedral is built here because of its association with the burial of St. Patrick. The interesting thing about John Patrick is that Although Patrick founded churches all over Ireland, he never actually founded a church at this point here. He was buried here, which was very unusual because most saints, virtually all saints, are buried in their main monastery. And when St. Patrick Christianized Ireland and built churches all over Ireland, he made Armagh the headquarters of the church, which it still is today for both the Catholic Church and for the Anglican Church. According to the earliest biographer of St. Patrick, it said that when Patrick felt that his mission was over and death was approaching, he set out for Armagh, intending to die there and be buried there. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and told him to go back to where he first came to Ireland. So he went back to Saul, which is a few miles out the road, and there he died. He also knew that there was going to be a row about his body after he died, which which turned out to be the case. So what he said was, when I die, get two untrained oxen, tie them to a cart, and shoo them off. And wherever they stop, bury me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they didn't go to Armagh, which is quite a distance from here, but came a few miles up the road and stopped on this hill here. At that time, this hill was a secular settlement and the headquarters of a local kingdom. The name of the kingdom was? It was the, the Dalfiatuk, or the Oli. The name Oli gets its, Ulster gets its name from. Ah, capital, right, got capital, you. The capital of the Oli. And he was buried here, and then it was changed from a secular site into a monastic site and has remained an ecclesiastical site until the present day. Okay. 
There was a series of churches built here during the early medieval period, but nothing of them survives. Most of them were wood, and even if they were stone, they would have been incorporated, the stone would have been incorporated into later buildings. With the coming of the Normans, new continental orders were brought over, like the Benedictines and the Cistercians, and this became a Benedictine site. And you're standing inside the shell of a medieval Benedictine monastery. You can see the carvings on top of pillars there, the faces over there, do you see them? And on this one here you can see vine leaves and grape representing the communion, which would have taken place at the eastern end of the uh, church. This remained as a Benedictine abbey until the Reformation, and as in the case of all abbeys across Britain and Ireland, they were dissolved under King Henry VIII. And this was left as a ruin for the next few hundred years, and it survived as a roofless ruin up until 1790, when the Anglican authorities... The land, of course, fell into the new Reformed Church with the Reformation when the Anglican authorities decided that they would put the roof back on and change it into the cathedral that you're in now. So you're inside a medieval monastery with a Georgian cathedral superimposed into it. That's superb. You said you're an archaeologist. What's the oldest piece here that we could go, oh, right, this almost dates back to Patrick himself? Well, there's... Very little from the period of Patrick, but for the centuries afterwards, there are pieces of cross in the vestibule when you, when you uh, came in. They were originally on top of St. Patrick's traditional grave, and it was replaced by that big monolith that you see there over a 100 years ago. So those are from the early medieval period. And the baptismal font, which you see up here, yes. was originally the base of a high cross, At some stage, it was removed and the opening made bigger and it was turned into a horse trough. And it was actually sitting outside a hotel in Dan Patrick for a few hundred years until somebody in the 1930s, I think, spotted that it was a piece of ecclesiastical sculpture. So then it was brought up here and is now the baptismal font. So it's in its third use. High cross base, horse trough, baptismal font. So that's very early as well, yeah. Which piece, uh, which part of this church gives you the greatest amount of pleasure? It's, I think it's a rather beautiful church because, unlike most cathedrals, it's not a parish church. So when this was a ruin, they built a parish church down the street, which is still there. So when they built it, they didn't really have a congregation, so they only fitted out two-thirds of the cathedral in pews. And it gave you this wonderful narthex, almost by mistake. So you can see the front and the back of the, the magnificent Georgian organ up here. Yes. Every other organ I know of is up against the wall, and you can only see the front of it. So I think that's a special feature. Yes. Also, these old, beautiful family box pews, they were taken out in, in, of churches in Victorian times in most places, so they have very rarely survived. So I think they give the place character, you know? Yeah. You mentioned the boxes as well, because we hear of up until like maybe 1800s or something like that, all families had their own private boxes. All had their own boxes. But it was found to be very divisive, because it was only rich families had their own uh, boxes, so those who weren't rich had to stand at the back or uh, around the place. And in Victorian times, uh, the Anglican Church decided this was very divisive, and these were taken out, and the ordinary pews that are not as divisive, that you can't see who the rich and the poor are when you walk into a church place instead but here they survived I'm not sure why they survived maybe they just didn't have the money to take them out and put in new ones but it's very fortuitous you also have the bishop's seat which is I was uh, going to ask about that yeah you can see his mitre on top and also when the the courts used to only sit a few times a year and when the the judges 
were uh, attending court, they also attended the Anglican Church, and of course they wanted their own seats to show that they were a little bit better than everybody else. So there's the two judges' seats from the Crown Court and from the Petty Sessions there as well. Sitting opposite the bishop's seat. And these are the coats of arms of the families who donated money to the restoration of the cathedral. The nice thing about the cathedral as well is that it's virtually totally symmetrical. Most churches have vestries stuck onto them or confession confession box outshots onto them but this church is beautifully symmetrical, you know. It is, it is. On all our previous churches we've been into today, a lot has been made mention quite rightly of the stained glass windows. So are there any particular stained glass windows here we well, should well, discuss? There's a stained glass window um, erected in, in a pro- I think in the 1930s uh, that commemorates St. Patrick. And on the left they show him as a slave and he was brought over and uh, looking after sheep. Then, of course, in, uh, you know the story that he escaped took up holy orders, became a, a bishop, and returned then to Christianized Ireland. So the right-hand side of the stained windows shows him back with his monks. And uh, also, because we, we had to climb up to see St. Patrick's statue, yes. I now know that the, the crook was facing inwards. No, wasn't, is that right? It was facing, it was facing Whereas here, it's facing to the side. And when he was a, a young man in one of the stained glass windows, He's holding the crick his left hand, but as an old man, he is oh, holding yeah. the crick on the right hand. Any reason for that, apart from maybe the artist's logic? I've stared at this for years and years, but I've never noticed that. So thank you for pointing <laughs> it out. To, thank you for pointing it out to me. Although so many people have pointed out to me that that sheep has a very long neck at the bottom. It's and a it, llama. It's a llama, yeah. I don't know what a llama, because I, I know of no early evidence for St. Patrick being associated with llamas. You know? <laughs> Finbar, this has been a sheer delight. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time with us. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, guys, we've got to go and see outside, but uh, anything else you'd like to add? Well, I would say that one of my favourite features uh, of the cathedral is if you go uh, with me up to the Ambo. This is where the Word of God is read, and you go to the other side. Okay? Uh Now, if you see, it's a very simple altar, but above the altar you have a hollow cross. So you have a cross and the figure inside is a hollow Christ. So it's like he, you see the, now, behind that cross with the cutout Christ inside it, it's hollow, you see all these beautiful um, stained glass of the apostles. But if you stand at a certain point, just at this tile, and you look through the cross, what you see in the middle of the cross is the risen Christ. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why it's hollow. It's quite beautiful. Oh, really? So there's always a reason, always a reason in art that I hardly know anything about, to tell you the truth. Well, listen, thank you so much. We've got to go and see now one final thing. The grave. The grave. Well, that was brilliant. Thank you for organising for me to listen to the wise words of Finbar. He was absolutely fantastic. And so we're rapidly concluding what will now be a two-parter for <laughs> St. Patrick's Day. You've brought us oh, about 30, 40 yards outside the church here, Cathedral Church, actually, in uh, Downpatrick, uh, the highest point of the land. What exactly are we looking at, please, Elaine? Okay, so we are actually at St. Patrick's grave, and you can see a very large stone that's covering the grave, and you can just about make out on the grave itself. It does need probably a little bit brushed up. You can see Patrick's name, and you can see, obviously, it's, it's uh, it probably needs a bit brushed up there, but you can see the Celtic cross there's a triangle at yep. the bottom again. Kind of maybe just depicting the 
called the cross of its time and you can see you know the size of its massive it, it took about 12 men to quarry this wow. and in 1900 this was done because what was happening is you can see all around here there's stone all around the story goes is that so many people were coming and taking soil you know from the grave that when people were going to america a lot of the suitcases were filled with soil so they were concerned about that rightly so it was so popular so they obviously emblazoned it around here with stone and put this big stone on top of it and it took about i think about 24 guys to be able to get this with the horses and put it on top but the background story is you know we're right beside the down cathedral mm-hmm. it's just across from us here absolutely beautiful aspect and as martinez pointed out before you're looking on to slave donard so you're really at almost at the high point of Dan Patrick itself. There was another high point beyond this called the Mound of Down, because as Martina mentioned before, this had been a seaside town. And uh, before the barrages were built, there were three of them, the last one being 1956, out by the coil. You know, this area here would have regularly flooded, but there were two hills that more or less would have been almost untouched. This would have been it, Down Hill here, and also the Mound of Down. So then you've heard from Finbar, whenever Patrick St. Patrick died, he was told by his angel that he was to be put on the back of a cart and two steer were to pull him up and wherever they stopped. Tradition has it that they stopped here on the Hill of Down. Now, he was buried here somewhere on the Hill of Down. And then John de Courcy in 1100-odds, he was a great sponsor of Patrick, but also for political reasons too. And what he did was he got the papal legate, legate at that time, who was Vivian. He got him over from Rome. And he took the remains of Patrick and also Bridget and Column Kill and had them reinterred in one site here so that this would be a place where people would come. And, you know, as well as paying homage to Patrick, also would come to Dan Patrick, of which de Courcy, you know, was obviously a prince and an earl over as well. So this site has been famous for years. And uh, this is probably the best evidence of St. Patrick's resting place. And now what we have here as well. We bring the pilgrims here and we also have each of them get a little passport. And in blue? In blue. We also have one in green. <laughs> green or blue because most of them also conclude with St. Patrick's grave, which we have as well on that too. Yeah. So what I'm going to do for you now is you're going to hear this sound. We have, Martina and I, we both have our stops. Just like, you know, the Camino passport, we have a passport here for St. Patrick's Way. And what we do is we have a little stamp here which is authentic. You can see St. Patrick's Way plus the mitre on top of the crozier. And what we do is we stamp that to sort of just to, as a, a memory to the people, look, you finished St. Patrick's Way. So if you want to now, I'll stamp this and give this passport to yourself and as well to your lovely wife, Alison, so you can take that away with you. If you'd like me to do that. Absolutely, so absolutely, you, yeah. If you, what we'll do now, I have it right on St. Patrick's grave and I'll just give it the stamp. And that proves, I'll give another one up here as well. And that proves that you have been on St. Patrick's Way. And also you've been to Saul, so you should probably have that stamped. Fantastic pictures here, which obviously, I'm hoping everybody wants to come to this now. Just just being cynical, not that I would ever be cynical, but if I was cynical on behalf of those that are listening that are, how authentic do you think it is that St. Patrick is actually underneath here? It is by tradition that he's buried here. There's no evidence he's buried anywhere else. He died here. And people passed on the oral tradition that he was buried here. There's three saints buried in this grave. I was going to mention that. Yeah, yeah, there's an ancient rhyme that the children sing in Down. Three saints in one grave. 
do Phil? Patrick, Patrick Bridget, and, and Colin, Colin Kill. Well, normally we know this, but we haven't looked at it in a while. Um, <laughs> makes it more interesting. <laughs> so the three saints are here. Three laughs in the back there. So, you know, the cheap seats. The, I wouldn't say that all his body is here because in those days the relics were taken. Yeah, there yeah. is tradition that his jawbone is in Deriahi. Where's that? It's not far from Belfast, and it's a relic, and they have examined this jawbone and said if Fitzpatrick's be about six feet tall. The Irish like to bury their saints outside. Now, the original burial was said to be inside where the cathedral is, and but of course he wanted these bones found, and Malachy, who was uh, in charge here, he, he was under great pressure to find them, and he was praying uh, very late at night, very worried, and this beam of moonbeam said to have come down, and on that spot he started digging, and he found three boxes. Now, Bridget said to have come here uh, because the Vikings were raiding, and so to protect her bones in Kildare, where she was originally buried, they were brought here. Colum Kill was said to have his said that his his soul would be in Derry, but his body would lie with Patrick's. And that this story is kind of more fantastical in that the Vikings raided Iona, where he was, found a fancy box, took it thinking it was treasure, found it was nothing but bones and discarded it here, <laughs> you know, on a beach. It uh, washed up. But, you know, as you said earlier about the traditions about Richard III, Richard III yeah. being buried <laughs> beneath this car park, mm-hmm. you know, in this particular spot, I'm not going to die in a ditch, but I think, you know, I'm quite certain that Patrick is, is buried here. And for those who are saying, Colin Kill, that name rings a bell. We're talking about, in modern day English, St. Columba. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, he was born in the, I think, the 6th century. And again, a disciple of Patrick, you know. And uh, Patrick and Columba and Bridget are the three primary saints that we have here uh, in Ireland. And uh, no better place for them than to be buried together in one grave. Literally just 10 yards away, there's a grave, a big gravestone with the name McCartan. And you mentioned McCartan earlier on. I'm just trying to remember who McCartan was. McCartan was Patrick's strongman. He was said to have been paid by Patrick's family to protect him. But Patrick, like a lot of people Patrick encountered, McCartan was converted and became Christian and a saint. And I believe he's one of is it nine or 12 people that Patrick put in charge of defending the faith on the island, along yeah. with St. Donald. There's a cathedral called St. McCartan's Cathedral in Clougher, which is named after St. McCartan. And it's also where he had his ecclesiastical place because Patrick told him to choose a place that wasn't too close to Armagh but not too far away for communication and that's where he chose and that's where his cathedral is. Well guys I can't thank you enough it's been absolutely an amazing day and before we go off of fish and chips I think it's only fair to say that those that listen all around the world hopefully and going yeah I'd like to come over here how can they get hold of you and where can they find more information, please? Well, you can find us through St. Patrick's Centre at www.stpatrickcentre, all one word, with the saint, the full spelling, dot com. And if you get on there, you can find all the experiences. And also there's a, a telephone number, Martina. It's 028-44-619000. And we, we have, have a Facebook page, St. Patrick's Centre Facebook page. And we have some amazing guides. One of them is uh, Dwayne Fitzsimmons, who is direct descendant of one of the Anglo-Normans that came here to conquer this land and he does an amazing walk called Patrick in the Pagan Hills. He's like a walking encyclopedia. Yeah, you can also access him through St. Patrick's Centre as well. 
Brilliant. And don't forget, if you mention off-grid Christianity when you book up, you'll get <laughs> you'll get an extra you'll get an extra chip, an well, extra you. couple of chips. Um, thanks very much to you and Alison. You've been very patient and listening to us and and oh, hearing it. the story. And so thank you very much. I yeah, thanks for having us and thanks for the privilege of uh, being able to talk with you, Martin. Well, God bless you. You've been very gracious. Thank you so much, guys. Good luck with the editing. <laughs> you normally finish well. You finished off last time, Martina. So uh, you can say cheerio. To all those on Martin's podcast, thanks for listening. Uh, you deserve a medal for that, and God bless. Cheerio. God bless. Just when we thought we had the last word, uh, Zoe, uh, we've never met before, she was listening intently, and so we decided to give her the passport. So what happens next then, Elaine? What happens is whenever we finish, we always have one of our pilgrims say St. Patrick's Breastplate at the end. And just as we came here, Zoe was there, and uh, I think she's a pilgrim, and she came up here to uh, the grave. So I think... As an authentic pilgrim, Zoe should have the last word from St. Patrick's, St. Patrick's Breastfeet. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me. God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me, afar and near. Alone or in multitude, Christ shield me today against wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. Amen.